2: The podcast is available on the Acast site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or a Banking Day for the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world. Subscribe to Talking Business from my website, LeonGetler.com. I am Leon Getler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 35 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, September the 29th. First, I'll be talking to John Pilcher, the CEO of Neuron Pharmaceuticals, the $1.5 billion ASX-listed biotech company, and AMP chief economist Shane Oliver will give his views about the profit reporting season. But first, let's talk to John Pilcher. Well, John, Neuron has successfully bought Trifonatide, uh, sold as debut to market as the world's first treatment for Rett syndrome. What is Rett syndrome? How does Trifonatide help?
3: yes yeah, so so rett syndrome is a serious neurological disorder that that emerges in early childhood it's caused by a uh, problems on the x chromosome in a particular gene on the x chromosome and sadly the result is a terribly wide range of problems affecting just about every aspect of life so walking talking breathing sleeping eating hand use cognitive function all these things are impacted for the children it's mainly girls there are a few boys but it's almost exclusively girls there's never been any treatment for them it's a massive burden on the patients and families for life so so yeah we were absolutely delighted to get the first ever treatment approved in in March and so our our drug debut it's not fixing the genetic mutation itself but it's also not just just a treatment of one particular symptom it's trying to improve the connectivity between the brain cells uh, and, and that's what that's what's wrong in Rett syndrome. The the connections between the brain cells and the signalling that happens between them is, is not uh, properly happening, and so that's what our drug is trying to improve. And so you see impacts across a you know a number of different things. And you, uh, we're now getting lots of stories coming out of the community, and it's things like improved communication, improved ability to use the hands for purposeful things, even improvements in walking uh, in some cases. So. So, yeah, very exciting time after a long, long journey to get there for us. So.
2: Well, Neuron is focused on developing a second drug, Kaplan Z2591, for four additional rare neurological disorders. Tell us a bit about how those disorders affect uh, afflicted children and their families.
3: Yeah, well, so, so we're in the beautiful position of having the benefit of hindsight uh, when it's useful, because all of these four syndromes are very similar to RET. They're not the same, they're different genetic mutations, but the kids, they look very similar clinically and it's same wide range of issues. And so actually, um, we're trying to do the same thing we've done with RET with four other syndromes is, is basically what it is, and with a drug that has some similarities to the to the first drug debut. Um, and so we're very hopeful we can, you know, we can get treatments to these, these communities as well, which need them just as badly as the ret community. So.
2: so what are some of the challenges all benefits of running four concurrent phase 2 trials?
3: Yeah, so it's, it's quite an ambitious plan that we took on. So with debut, the first drug, we just developed it in, in ret syndrome, uh, but with this one, we didn't want this to play out over you know 10 years. We all all these communities need a treatment urgently. And I think our shareholders for shareholders obviously the sooner we can do things the better. So we felt there was a good a good chance of this working across four indications, and therefore we should do them in parallel. So that's indeed what we're trying to do running four trials at the same time. It is challenging because even though these are small trials, these first trials in patients, and they're all very similar because the you know the conditions are very similar there's still, you know, there's a certain fixed element to running a clinical trial, which is is the same. So it's times four. Uh, And obviously we needed to get the funding in place as well. So we did capital raisings back in 2020 and 2021 to make sure that we had the funds needed to run these trials. And that was before we knew the results of the debut um, outcome. And what's happened now is that the debut outcome is is good and we're now getting very large cash flows coming to Neuron from our partner Acadia for debut but in the meantime we made sure we were well funded for the second drug but you know whatever happened so so we're really looking forward to the first result coming in December uh, to see see whether we're right about this second drug you know we have high conviction about it so
2: so bring a drug through to commercialization is a big feat for any biotech uh, mm. what were some of the biggest takeaways from this process and is there anything you would do differently
3: yeah so i mentioned a long journey so 10 years basically we did started our first trial in ret syndrome back in 2013 so it's been a 10-year journey i've i've been with the company for that whole journey as have some of my colleagues so yeah we've learned an enormous amount and you know we've had to show incredible determination and motivation to to get through We, we some of those periods we certainly weren't in the in the great position we're in now we had you know and not much cash and not great market support. And we just had to make make sure we got through, you know, d- despite that. And the other thing is no one had ever done anything in Rett syndrome before. So we weren't following what anyone else did. We had to sort of create the path ourselves. So incredibly challenging, but having done it once, uh, as I said, we've got the beautiful benefit of hindsight and there are things we think we did very well and we've replicated all of those in these programs with the second drug. But there are some things we think we can do better. And so, you know, we've designed the clinical trials slightly differently and we've gone straight into kids um, with the first trial, which we didn't do with triphenatide. And we're treating for longer because uh, all the data says the longer you get treated with the drug, the better the outcome. So we think we've given it the best chance of success and trying to move faster than we did on that 10 year journey with the first one.
2: Uh, well in related to that our received a uh, substantial cash flow cash inflow from its worldwide partnership with Acadia yeah. but so how will these funds actually be used specifically
3: yeah it's a very very good question and we have a big decision to make after we get the first results from this this phase two trials in December which is for Fel McDermott syndrome if they're as good as we hope they will be then we we have the option to to proceed ourselves through phase three which we couldn't do with debut because we as I said we didn't have the money we didn't have the market support probably didn't have the expertise in those days either but we think we've got all of those three things now so so definitely an option for us is to use that money to invest in the phase three for the second drug and you can get a massive uplift in value if you do that you know, a good example is our, our arrangement with Acadia originally at the end of phase two we licensed them North America and they paid us 10 million US dollars up front we've just licensed in the rest of the world for an approved product now and they've paid us 100 million us dollars up front so there's no doubt if you can take drug to the end you you know you've retained so much more of the value so uh that's i guess plan a but we are not going to commit to it until we see the data and also you know make sure that you know, from a capability point of view and a risk-reward point of view, it's the right thing to do. And we'll also have to talk to the FDA to make sure we've got them on side, as we did with the first stroke. But, um, you know, we're in a, in a great position to contemplate all of this now.
2: Uh, I mean, that raises another question. I mean, how do you see the Australian biotech landscape changing over <clears> the, <throat> the few years? I mean, particularly because in Australia, unlike the US, there isn't a lot of venture capital in biotech. No.
3: No, no, you're right. So it's interesting. I think uh, there's a few sort of themes have developed in recent years. I think a lot more medical technology and device companies. You know, there's a lot of really interesting technology, which is not drug development, which is what we're in. So that's certainly a much bigger part of the scene than it was. And I think that's going to continue, particularly on the technology side. And that's sort of typically lower risk, lower investment, but but I guess probably lower return as well. But I still think there's going to be drug development. Plays, and I think uh, I think we've shown that it, it can be done. You know, there, there are some failures in the past that probably put people off a bit, but I think we've we've shown that we can indeed do this. And there are some other companies who are you know a little bit behind us, but getting towards that phase as well. Um, I'm always asked, who, you know, who's going to be the next CSL? I always say I'm not sure anyone's going to be the next CSL. I think that was probably a unique situation how, how that all came about in the first place. But I think you know there's definitely the possibility of you know of of, of some leading companies i mean our market caps 1.5 billion now um there are others you know in that in that sort of space so i think i think the sector can be very healthy but you know the thing you mentioned about venture capital i think that's still critical to to do the hard yards early on to get it to the point where it can then be supported in the public markets i still think that's critical and hopefully you know there's 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 more people operating that space and will continue to be so
2: how can you get more venture capital funds on board
3: well i think i think success success stories is a big part of it i mean people are going to invest if they if they can see examples of success and as i said we've we've had a few of those now ourselves telix is another one has been very successful so i think um you know that shows people what the what the end value can be and therefore uh you know incentivizes them to invest so.
2: yeah i mean as opposed to i mean at the moment ventures a lot of venture capital goes into areas like mining Indeed. areas like that yeah but uh biotech is screaming out for support
3: yeah it is and i think you know technology is moving forward the whole time so uh you know you might you might argue there's less risk now than there used to be because we know so much more about you know about the biology of, of of the you know the whole body, including the brain. So, so I feel in you know in the future, the risk the risk may be less than it used to be.
2: Well, John, it's been terrific talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Liam. Yeah, great to talk to you too. You. And now let's talk to AMP Capital chief economist Shane Oliver. Well, Shane, what's your view about the profit reporting season? Look, I would characterize it as being okay, but not great.
1: It was certainly better than the market had feared if you go back to the end of July I think there's a lot of fear around this profit reporting season because we knew that there'd been a significant tightening in monetary policy and the worry was that many sectors would um, would underperform but as it's turned out it it sort of turned out okay but it's still on the soft side if I look at the number of companies who surprised analysts on the upside it was less than normal uh, there was There were more companies surprising expectations on the downside uh, we had fifty six percent of companies reporting uh, profit gains on a year ago, whereas the norm is sixty three percent so less than normal uh, proportion of companies growing their earnings and Of course, we saw only forty percent of companies raise their dividends on a year ago, whereas the norm is about fifty eight percent which would suggest a degree of caution so all of those things. Um, suggest that it it wasn't great, um, but I don't think it was as bad as some had been fearing uh, prior to the
2: reporting season getting underway. It struck me that uh, the economy is remarkably resilient, given that companies are still reporting profits. They, they
1: certainly are. There's no doubt about that. And there were some uh, so, some some very strong numbers in there, uh, of course, from uh, some of the retailers and. Uh, Mining companies, although the mining company profits, have started to slow down and uh, also quite as uh, stood out with a, a record result. By the same token, it's interesting to note that when you you run through the reporting season, there's a number of themes that stick out. I think cost pressures are still a challenge for companies, uh, maybe not so much goods prices, but particularly in terms of uh, labour costs and rent and so on. Uh, building material companies still benefiting from the strong activity in that area, although some are warning of a slowdown. Insurers, uh, and they reported earlier in the reporting season, they saw, um, some margin improvement, but of course that came at the expense of, um, their customers who saw big increases in their premiums. And I can certainly attest to that. Uh, so far home borrowers seem to be keeping up their payments according to the two banks that did report through the reporting season. That's CBA and Adelaide or Bendigo Bank. But of course, as CBA pointed out, uh, rate hikes have yet to fully flow through. But but one thing that did stick out was that corporate guidance was generally cautious. And I think that partly explains why, through the reporting season as a whole, earnings expectations from the consensus of earnings analysts or equity analysts actually slipped for 23-24. For the current financial year, if you go back to the start of the reporting season, expectation would be that profits for this financial year would be down 0.8%, whereas by the end of the reporting season, that had been revised down to a fall of 5.7%. So yes, the economy has been resilient, but by the same token, there was some cautious guidance in there, particularly from the retailers. Most of the retailers said, yeah, we've had great results, but a lot of that was, was earlier on. And recently, we are seeing some signs of consumers starting to flag a little bit. Uh, that would suggest that uh, the the big
2: concern would be about the
1: outlook. That's right. I think the big concern is about the outlook. Uh, we, we know the economy has been perhaps more resilient than might have been feared going back a year ago, 18 months ago. Uh, so that's that's sort of borne out in these numbers and it's also borne out, for example, in the jobs market, which still shows a very low unemployment rate. But by the same token, there are some cracks starting to emerge uh, with less companies being able to grow their profits, less companies raising their dividends, more cautious guidance, uh, going forward. And of course, uh, ongoing, <coughs> weak levels of consumer confidence, uh, which all sort of warn that, yeah, things are sort of okay, but, you know, they're, they're likely to weaken a little bit further going forward. And you've still got that risk of recession overhanging, um, the share market and the broader economy. I and mean, we're, we're hopeful that we avoid it, but I think that risk of recession is still very high.
2: And uh, so the outlook would suggest that uh, the recovery is going to be very slow.
1: Look, I think it will be. You know, historically, you raise interest rates, things slow down. You know, hopefully, you avoid a recession. But you know, we've had the biggest rise in interest rates since the late 1980s. And we know that back then, that did end in recession in the early 1990s. Of course, interest rates this time have gone up 4%, not 8%, like they did back then. Um, but, but, of course, we also have... Uh, three times the amount of debt compared to people's incomes that we had back in the late 80s. Uh, There are some differences, but that risk is high. I guess the broader issue is when when you expect a recovery to come through, economic recovery or reacceleration to come through, including in profits, it's normally preceded by cuts to interest rates. And I think we will start to see cuts to interest rates next year, but it's still some, some time off before we get to that point. Um, and so these high interest costs will continue to bear down on households and also, of course, on uh, on businesses that might have high levels of debt. It's mainly the households that are the concern at this point in time. Um, and so until we see rate cuts, which are still some time off, you know, it's a bit hard to start talking about uh, recovery, although we do expect by the end of 2024 growth will start to pick up again. But you, you've got to get those rate cuts starting to come through before that happens.
2: Well, the broader story is also about inflation. I mean, the RBA is talking about inflation not coming down until 2025.
1: That's right. Well, they do, they do actually have it coming down and it's already come down from 8% or so. Most recent number, monthly number was 4.9%. So it has come down and the RBA sees it continuing to fall, but they don't see it getting back to the target range of 2 to 3% until the end of 2024. And I think they see it at the high point at that target range, back at 3% by mid-2025. I should have said 2025. So, yeah, they don't send back in the target until late 2025. So that, that's an ongoing constraint on what the Reserve Bank can do. We think there's a good chance inflation might come down faster, but we, you know, it's going to be a while before we know that. And in the meantime, there are still threats there. If you look at uh, the latest National Australia Bank business survey, it shows ongoing elevated readings regarding labour costs, and uh, input costs and also output prices. So they're down from their highs, but you know, you'd know, you rather see those indicators continuing to improve. And we've specifically got the issue of wages growth um, it looks to be perking up and that could be an issue going forward. So that, that's why it's, it's, it's still a bit premature to get excited about the RBA cutting interest rates. And in the meantime, if, if there's a risk in any direction, it's still on the upside for rates, not on the downside. You know, if they're going to come down, it's next year, but in the next six months, the risks are probably still, still on the upside for rates, given those, you know, the, the concern that inflation may take longer to get back to the target than the Reserve Bank's allowing for.
2: And certainly the company's reporting would have been certainly aware of uh, the latest figures showing that we're basically in a per capita recession.
1: They may or may not have. The per capita recession data came out the week after the reporting season ended, but businesses would have been starting to feel it. Uh, and it, it's a funny thing in a way, you know, an average, well, it, it's all, its a technical term, per capita recession. Most people don't understand what it means. Of course, it's, it's the, the you know, per capita GDP is the level of economic activity divided by the number of people. Um, and we've now had two quarters in a row where that's actually gone backwards. So you call it a per capita recession. Um, most people would find that all a bit technical, but I, I think people would sort of feel it as their living standards going backwards, that once you allow for the impact of higher inflation and the constraints on their ability to spend, that people would be feeling you know, uneasy about things, that things might be going backwards. And that's what shows up in a per capita recession. Now, you also get per capita recessions when the economy contracts. But because the population growth is so strong, it means the economy is not contracting at present. It's still expanding. Um, but it's all being driven by very strong population growth. And that, of course... uh
3: com slash ACAST.
1: It's a bit of a bird for many companies because while spending per person may not be growing, overall spending in the economy is still growing because you've got more people coming into the country uh, because of surging population growth. So that's providing a bit, of, um, uh, yeah, a bit of a source of strength for companies. They're still getting demand growth through, but it's not because people are feeling better off. It's because uh, there's just more people out there. Um, so it's a bit of a, a messy environment. The average person would be saying, well, I'm, I feel I'm going backwards. But uh, companies might say, well, they're not too bad. You know, we're still going demand growth.
2: And certainly the latest figures from the profit reporting season would suggest, wouldn't it, that the next profit reporting season in February is not going to be that bright either?
1: Well, it might be a bit weaker again. Uh, and we have seen this stepping down in profit growth. If you go back to the 21-22 financial year, profit growth was something like 20-odd percent. I think it was about 22%. Uh, We've now stepped down. In the most recent profit reporting season, um, profits ended up being up, but only by 1.5%. That's for 2022, 2023. And next, or the current financial year, the one we're in right now, we'll probably see profits go backwards to the tune of 55 to 6%. And of course, we'll get the first clear inkling of that in the uh, February results that come out for the current half year. Um, so yeah, we may, we may go through a softer patch in terms of the earnings reports. Now, the question for the share market is whether that's fully discounted or not. You could say, well, if that's the, the earnings consensus, then if we get that, then the market will look through it uh, and start to focus on the eventual recovery coming through. But if it turns out earnings expect- earnings uh, numbers are actually weaker than that, then the market might start to, to get right, which obviously implies there is a bit of a risk to the share market in the short term that if we start to see weaker conditions, uh, that uh, analysts may revise down their earnings forecasts further and that, of course, uh, would then be associated with further weakness in the share market. But I think the flip side, though, and this is reason for optimism, so I'm, I must admit I'm a little bit cautious in the short term, I'm also conscious we're going through the, the what is traditionally the weakest month of the year for US and Australian shares i.e. September. But if you take a 12 month view, I think on a 12 month the rise in inflation will have slowed enough for central banks to get off the break and for some central banks to be to be starting to cut interest rates. And that I think will provide an underpinning of a, 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 or enable enable share markets to look forward look through the toughness we're going through to uh, an economic recovery. Um, but obviously, a fair way to go to get to that point. But I think on a 12-month horizon, shares, probably end up doing, doing okay, even though the next few months
2: could be a bit rough. Well, Shane, that's quite fascinating and important. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Have a good day. So what's happening in the news? Well, inflation has accelerated for the first time in four months, largely due to higher fuel costs and reds pushing up annual consumer prices by 5.2% in August. The jump in the monthly consumer price indicator from 4.9% in July comes as investors fret about sticky inflation, and bet that borrowing costs will stay higher for longer. Inflation has moderated from a peak of 8.4% in December, but the acceleration last month suggests a hope returned to the Reserve Bank's of Australia's target of 2-3% by late 2025 as the forecast could be volatile and not a straight line. The RBA is likely to wait for the September quarter consumer price index due in late October, Before deciding whether to raise the current 4.1% cash rate, a 9.1% monthly increase in petrol prices was a significant driver of the rise in August inflation. And average pay rises in new collective agreements have risen to a high of 4.7% entrenching a benchmark for wages that could pressure on the Reserve Bank's efforts to control inflation. Applications to approve enterprise agreements across banking, education, construction and retail reveal wage deals lodged over July and August, including for the National Australia Bank recorded average increases of 4% or above for six months in a row for the first time this year. And soaring petrol prices pushed local inflation higher in August, with the increases showing little signs of abating. The average price of regular petrol has continued to rise this month and was up 14.1 cents to. 220.4 cents a litre, in Sydney for the week to Thursday. But AMP chief economist Shane Oliver said the RBA was likely to brush off inflation's rebound as an anomaly related to a month-long campaign by Saudi Arabia and Russia to cut oil's global supply and force energy prices higher. Still, the worries over high energy prices and more interest rate pain sent Wall Street to its fourth straight day of losses on Friday, with its flagship S&P 500 index down 2.9% for the week and the interest rate-sensitive NASDAQ index losing 3.6% for the period. In the United States, according to Labor Department figures, energy prices charged by suppliers rose 11% in all. That included a 20% increase in prices at the Bowser, while diesel fuel was up 41%. Earlier this month, Saudi Arabia extended cuts to its oil output until the end of the year, leading to warnings of a significant supply shortfall. And much ink has been spilled about the impending retirement of Rupert Murdoch as chairman of the Global News Empire he founded and his family still controls. But what's been overlooked so far is that Murdoch, as has so often been the case in a seemingly endless career, engineered quite the golden handshake for himself. The man who made the news will, admit will be entitled to pension benefits worth $219 million from his US operation Fox Corps when he steps down as chairman of the company in November, according to the latest filings of the American corporate regulator. Closer to home, Murdoch Sr., who will take up the role of emeritus chairman and be succeeded in the top job by, by his number one boy, Lachlan Murdoch, was entitled to a touch over $6.4 million from the News Corp Australia operation, plus his bonus $2 million in the financial year 2022. Rupert's updated entitlements have yet to be published, and Superfund Hester has warned the largest listed companies it intends to vote against male directors of boards with low female representation. In letters sent last week to the Chairs and Chief Executives of the largest 292 ASX listed companies it invests in, the $76 billion fund said it would seek to engage on four active ownership themes ahead of the upcoming annual general meeting season. This includes influencing corporate policies of climate, decent work and biodiversity loss. The fund, which largely manages the superannuation of health and community service employees, in its fourth annual letter warned 129 companies that it would automatically vote against male directors if the companies met certain criteria. Hester told the companies it intended to vote against male directors in elections if the, if the boards had less than 30% in female representation and against the chair if the executive teams are male-dominated. Hester did not mention any companies, but according to the chief executive women, CEW 2022 Census, there were 46 companies with all-male executive teams among the ASX 300. Those included retailers JB Hi-Fi, Breville, LaVisa, bathroom supplier Reese, and minor Silver Lake Resources. And Qantas says it will spend at least an additional $80 million to fix service issues, even while fuel costs have risen $200 million. It's first hit to profits as the airline attempts to repair its deteriorating relationship with customers. The airline said in an ASX statement that the spending on new initiatives would reach $230 million this financial year. The details of the spending come after Qantas chief executive Vanessa Hudson flagged the company would consider bringing call centres back to Australia to open up more frequent flyer seats and make other changes to rebuild its reputation. Investors have benefited from a surge in airline profits as demand for travel increased following the COVID-19 pandemic, but disquiet is growing at how much Qantas will have to spend to retain customers and deal with a series of regulatory and legal issues accumulated under former chief executive Alan Joyce. The airline said the funding would be directed toward better contact centre resources and training, and increasing the number of seats that can be redeemed with frequent fly points, more generous recovery support when operational issues arise, a a review of long-standing policies for fairness, and improvements to the quality of in-flight catering. However, the airline warned that high fuel costs, which are up 30% since May, including a 10% increase since August, could lead to higher airfares. And releasing Qantas emails about Qatar Airways bid to... Double weekly flights into Australia could cause the local carrier embarrassment, ridicule or public criticism and damage Australia's diplomatic relations, including with Qatar. Transport Minister Catherine King's department says. Qantas emailed Ms King's department on September 5th last year providing comments on Australia's forward negotiating programme for bilateral air services agreements and again on October 22nd about Australian Qatar air services arrangements. In contrast, Perth Airport last week told a Senate inquiry the first it knew of Qatar Airways application to fly an additional seven flights a week into Western Australia which was rejected in July was the day before. The Department blocked access to both emails, along with a briefing to Ms. King titled Qatar Air Services Agreement Negotiating Mandate, dated January 4, 2023, and a third email from Qantas dated July 7, 2023, about Australia's air service arrangements with Vietnam and Turkey. The Senate inquiries this week expected to hear from a Qatar Airways representative. Former Qantas Chief Executive Alan Joyce, his successor Vanessa Hudson and Chairman Richard Goyer have also been invited, although sources suggested Mr Joyce was unlikely to appear. Qatar Airways' push to 28 weekly flights into Sydney, Melbourne, Perth and Brisbane have caused a political headache for the Albanese government, which has struggled to explain why the bid was blocked, amid allegations that want to shield Qantas from competition on the important Europe group. Ms King's Chief bureaucrat in charge of the International Aviation Branch, Assistant Secretary Jim Wolfe, said making Qantas emails public could constitute a breach of confidence because it could, among other factors, cause detriment, which in this sense would involve financial loss, embarrassment, exposure to ridicule or public criticism to the affected third party. He went on to say there was a reasonable expectation of damage to the international relations. If this information were made publicly available, it would have the capacity to prejudice or undermine the department's relations with other countries. And Qantas shareholders have demanded Chairman Richard Goida's resignation and place the rest of the airline's board on notice as concerns grow among furious investors over the amounting costs of legal battles and reputational damage. Mr Goida and CEO Vanessa Hudson will face a grilling at a Senate inquiry over the Qatar Airways' rejection in Canberra on Wednesday. The Australian Shareholders Association, ASA, said Mr Goiter's time as Qantas chairman needed to end in the wake of the ACCC's legal action over ghost flights. A High Court ruling over illegally sacked workers and the fallout from the airline's final multi-million dollar payout to former CEO Alan Joyce. The group has also placed the Qantas board on notice ahead of its annual general meeting in November. Australian Shareholders Association Chief Executive Rachel Waterhouse said the remaining members of the Qantas board should consider themselves as being on notice to improve the airline's culture. Qantas's board is comprised of 10 members. In addition to Mr Goider and CEO Vanessa Hudson and Maxine Brenner, Jacqueline Hay, Belinda Hutchinson, Michael Lestrange, Doug Parker, Todd Sampson, Heather Smith and Anthony Tyler. Ms Waterhouse said Mr Goider should resign after appearing at the airline's annual general meeting in November when there is a clear succession plan in place. Ms Waterhouse said the position of Qantas' current CEO, Ms Hudson, has not become untenable at this stage, but warned it depended on the legal challenges facing the airline. The ASA is the first major shareholder group to have publicly called for the resignation of Mr Goida as Qantas Chair. It represents retail shareholders, which altogether make up about 10% of Qantas's total shareholdings, according to the airline's latest annual report. The Australian Council of Superannuation Investors, AXI, which represents major superannuation funds that hold Qantas shares, has not yet taken a public stance against the board. And record high September temperatures and an early bushfire season along the east coast of Australia have confirmed it's going to be a long, hot and dry summer this year. After Europe sweltered through its hottest summer on record, weather forecasters and climate experts have warned Australia will also experience a stinker of a summer, which has major implications for our cities, energy grid and natural environment. The Bureau of Meteorology last Tuesday declared an El Niño and a positive Indian Ocean to Pole event this summer. El Nino is a weather system that results in what Australians would consider a traditional hot and dry summer. It comes after three summers shaped by the La Nina system, which is characterised by milder temperatures and winter conditions. The BOM's climate manager, Carl Braganza, says both El Nino and a positive Indian Ocean to Pole are the opposite of La Nina and tend to draw rain away from Australia. The BOM warns that El Nino, combined with a positive Indian dipole, which have only been declared in the same year seven times since 1960, significantly increased fire danger in southeastern Australia across spring and summer. The last time Australia experienced both events in the same year was, to, was in 2015. The Insurance Council of Australia warns El Nino leads to more severe heatwaves, heightened bushfire risks and worsening droughts, which also bring a hefty price tag. The Council says the total damage bill from the 2019-20 Black Summer event was $2.32 billion and almost 39,000 claims were lodged. Since the 2019-20 fires, insurers have paid out more than $16.8 billion in natural disaster claims from 13 declared catastrophes and five significant events. Apart from the stretched resources of rural fire grades and skyrocketing insurance premiums, energy regulators will be having a stressful summer as they attempt to cope with the extra demand. The Australian energy market operator is responsible for ensuring there is enough supply on the grid, especially for those heatwaves when households and businesses crank up their air conditioners. The AEMO has to ensure there is not only enough supply on the grid to deal with peak demand, usually in February, after a fortnight of high temperatures, but also be prepared for any... Unexpected outages of coal-fired power stations. Coal-fired power stations have been been the backbone of the national electricity market for decades, but have become more unreliable as they get older. Most power station owners usually undertake planned maintenance in the winter months when demand is lower, but any unexpected outages over summer could be a major headache for grid operators. AMO will line up its emergency deals known as reliability and emergency reserve trader contracts for energy users to either cut their usage in times of peak demand or for energy producers to deliver more power into the grid if needed. They are paid for their services. AMO's latest 10-year electricity update, known as the Electricity Statement of Opportunities, was released last month before El Nino was declared. An advanced degree-like apprenticeships will be offered in a push to double the number of young Australians skilled in areas such as clean energy and the care economy. Under the plan, the bachelor equivalent apprenticeships will be established independent of universities in a bid to stop the decline of people signing up for trades, Releasing the white paper on Monday, Treasurer Jim Chalmers announced a handful of measures to help start tackling the nation's skill and labour challenges, including allowing aged pensioners to permanently be able to earn up to $300 a fortnight through work without affecting their payment. Others on income support, such as the unemployed, who enter the workforce and lose their welfare payment, will be allowed to keep welfare-related concessions for 24 weeks, up from the current 12 weeks, in a bid to lure them into the workforce. Other policy decisions announced as part of the White Paper include exploring the concept of a National Skills Passport and spending $40 million to increase a share of Australians working in areas of high need by, by expanding TAFE training in emissions <laughs> reductions, the care sector and digitalisation. The Jobs Blueprint, the first of its kind since 1994, is set to include initiatives and policy directions across a range of areas, including reforms to the migration system, investment in skills and changes to enhance workforce participation. Dr Chalmers said the White Papers, a commitment from Labour's Jobs and Skills Summit last year, seeks common ground between employers and workers. And the Council of Financial Regulators has warned about the fallout of any sharp Chinese slowdown, saying the uncertainty around the outlook for Australia's largest trading partner has increased. A cocktail of stressors in China's property sector interacting with longer-term financial vulnerabilities has elevated the Council's focus on contagion risks, cautious on Monday. The warning comes after Beijing last week flagged the possibility of interest rate cuts to stimulate its economy, which is grappling with a deflating property bubble. On Monday, the Council, which is chaired by Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock and includes Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy and top officials from APRA and ASIC, said any sharp slowdown would spread to the Australian economy. It would principally transmit to Australia through trade channels and through an increase in risk aversion in global financial markets, said the statement published after the Council's quarterly meeting. China's economy has been in in retreat for much of a year after a brief sugar rush following the removal of COVID-19 restrictions and lockdowns in January. GDP was up 0.8% in the June quarter compared to 2.2% in the March quarter, while it was also experiencing deflation for the first time in two years, with CPI down 0.3% in the year to July. Youth unemployment has, has also risen significantly to be above 20%. Sentiment about China's economy has worsened. In recent months, amid the state of its housing market and authorities taking a conservative approach to more stimulus, much to the disappointment of financial markets, which for months have been hoping for plans that will boost the demand for iron ore. The RBA noted this month that China's property sector faced significant challenges from stress among developers and further defaults posed a risk to the economic activity. A sharper deterioration in China's economic growth posed a downside risk to the outlook for service exports and would also be expected to reduce the prices received for Australia's commodity exports, the RBA board said in September Minutes. Lower output growth in China would also affect global output growth which might in turn affect a range of Australian exports as well as the prices of Australian imports. However, if this downside risk were to eventuate, these effects would likely be partly offset by a depreciation of the Australian dollar. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to X2M CEO Mohan Jesiderson. X2M has partnered with Resi Ventures to embark on a bold 1,000-home project in Echuca, Victoria that redefines smart community and energy design x 2 m will also work with the RACV for clean energy solutions. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market the next week. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to lean economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, LeonGetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.
1: Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues